Well, we've been on the longest series of my life, probably the longest series of your lives. <laughs> we are on King David. Usually I take eight to 10 weeks and do King David and go through a leadership nuggets. But as I began to go through, I just began to see it from a different perspective and just really began to just apply it to everyone and how his life lessons can apply to us, both good and bad. And so we spent a lot of time following David, a king after, I mean, a, a man after God's own heart. And then last week, we took a sudden turn where our precious, wonderful little David took a dive. And um, it was funny seeing some of your guys' faces. It was, uh, it was like, I know you probably heard it, and, but hadn't read it in a while. And, and I think we forget how bad of a situation David got himself into. And so just to review, just to review last week, um, we saw where David ended up sleeping with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And the Bible tells us that he, when all the kings were out at war, he was actually at war, Israel, with another nation. And David stayed home. And he was restless and got up in the night and he walked the roof and he saw Bathsheba bathing from the rooftop. And uh, he inquired of her and sent his servants to go bring her to him. And he slept with Bathsheba. Now, a king could probably call on whoever he wants at that time, but in this particular situation, he was calling on somebody that was a no-no. First of all, Bathsheba was married, which is a big no-no in the kingdom of God. But even more than that, if that wasn't bad enough, he ended up sleeping with one of his 30 best men's wife. There's a whole chapter dedicated to David's mighty man, and Uriah the Hittite was one of the mighty men, and, and he decided that he wanted to sleep with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, his mighty man's wife. And so we had a look at that. And first of all, I was like, holy smokes, how does a man after God's own heart turn so quickly? And then we started to just look at some, maybe some reasons why. And, you know, last week we looked at, you know, that he stayed home while all his army was out at war. While the kings were out at war, um, David stayed at home. And we talked about how idle hands, you know, are, are the breeding ground for the enemy. You know, and sometimes if we, if we don't have our focus on what is right, our focus ends up on what is wrong. And so we got to keep sometimes busy in life and the things that are good, especially to those that have very intense personalities. I encourage you all the time, take something up that is good. Focus on something that is good. Never stop doing what is good because you can keep focused on something wonderful then. You know, the Proverbs tell us that without vision, people perish. And so good vision is what we want. We want to keep our eyes on good things. And so maybe one of the reasons David fell is he should have been out there with his men. It wasn't until later on, we'll see later on in, in, in the chapters, that David's men no longer wanted him to go out anymore because he, he was getting close to dying and they didn't want their leader dead. But up to this point, that hadn't even happened yet. David was usually at war with these men. And this time he chose not to be there. And so why was he not at war? That's my next question that we didn't look at last week. And these are questions that I ask myself. And so why was David not at war? Was he feeling bad? Well, I can't see that. David had been through hell and back on several occasions. We all looked at that. He was able to keep going. He was able to go through the craziest circumstance. So why wasn't he at war? And the Bible doesn't tell us a lot in this particular story. And I think it's for a reason. I think it leaves it open so we can come to our own conclusions on why David did what he did. Because if it's just one, then it leaves a whole bunch of other reasons out. But if he leaves it open and we begin to think about why he did it, we can start to look at our own lives and say, okay, we're could we get ourselves into trouble and where do we need to keep going? And so I asked myself why he wasn't at war. One of the questions I asked myself is, had he seen her before? Right? Was he like, okay, you're going out to war. Now's my chance. Uriah the Hittite's out 
at war, you know, had he seen her before? The Bible doesn't tell us if he'd seen her before or not. But had he seen her before? Had he seen other young ladies and, 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 and wanted something going on? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Had he seen her before? And if so, is that one of the reasons why he stayed behind? And I think about addiction, any addiction, whether it be from whatever, from drugs and alcohol to, to sex to whatever, gambling to the refrigerator. I think about addiction and I think what we think about and what we look at is what we gravitate towards. And that's why we have to be careful to focus on good things because what we stare at becomes us. Matter of fact, Proverbs 4 tells us to guard our heart because out of it flows the forces of life. It literally says that we guard our heart because if we put too much in it, it will create our future. Out of it flows the forces or, or the issues of life, another translation will say, to guard our heart with all diligence. And that's why the Bible tells us to put the word of God in it. We talked about it last week that we can't go through life as believers not spending time in the word of God. We can't. The word of God is what keeps our path straight. The word of God tells us that it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. It keeps us from heading into darkness. It keeps us from stumbling. It keeps us from running into things. And so I can't stress it enough that we need to fill our heart with things that are good. The Bible talks about filling it with things that are pure and just and right and noble. And so we always need a cause. We always need to be reading our word and we always need a cause. We need to be being good at the end of the day. Get, get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be good. Not, not like I'm going to be good, I'm not going to do anything bad. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good to people. And when we focus on people and being good to people, man, that's a great vision to have. That's the vision that God wants us to have. You know, we've talked about it so much over David's life, but, you know, everybody can say you're close to God, but then you're mean to people, and that, the Bible says you're a liar if that happens. Every time we see people get close to Jesus, they're like, feed my sheep. If you're close to me, then you'll deal with people properly. And so wake up in the morning and, I'm gonna, and say to yourself, I'm going to be really good to people today. And that'll fix a lot of the problems. I'm going to be really good to people. No matter who it is, I'm going to be really good to people. Whether it's a smile, whether it's a hello, whether whatever it is, whether it's being generous, whether it's at the gas station or the restaurant, or even your own friends and family, I'm going to be good to people today. And I'll tell you, when we focus on that, it clears up a lot of our problems. You know, you've probably heard me say this a million times over the years, but when there's darkness in a room, how do we get rid of the darkness? Do we try to cast the darkness out of the room? No, that's silly. But a lot of us spend our time trying to cast darkness out of places. We get darkness out of the room by how? Flicking the light on and the darkness leaves. Same with our lives. The word of God inside of us, focusing on what is good, being good to people, walking in the commandment of love. And darkness has to leave. The Bible says where there's envy and strife, there's every demonic work. Which means when you're in strife and you're, and you're in unforgiveness, it means the enemy is actually working in your life. You know how quickly we can change that? By flicking the light on and just being good. So why did it happen? One of the reasons David wasn't at war. The second reason is how does a guy like David, other than addiction and can't stop himself, but how does a guy like David figure he can do this now? After everything he's been through, after the Lord taking care of him so many times, how does a guy like this figure he can just do this? Is it power? You know, David was on the run and maybe felt like he couldn't get away with this. And, and we're like that, right? When we're in trouble or we're sick or we're hurting, we tend to call on God a lot. But when things are good, do you ever shut them off because things are just good and you don't pray as much anymore because things are good? We can get ourselves in trouble that way, right? And maybe David was now in power, figured he didn't need to talk to the Lord much, or maybe he, he has a new set of rules now. 
that God made him king. He's super favored of the Lord. Never get in that position where you think that you're better than somebody else, ever. That's a real no-no in the kingdom of God. And we're going to see how that's the biggest no-no in this. But was it his abuse of power? Was it because he was drunk with power? Now, we might never end up being king of a nation. But we all have people in our lives that we have the ability to have power over. Whether it's in a workplace, whether it's just by being a dominant personality over a lesser personality, a less dominant personality. But be careful about how we treat people that we have power over. God expects more out of us for those individuals. More. More. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God at the highest levels are going to be filled with what? Servants, first of all. But it says that those who are least honored publicly will be greatest in the kingdom of God. Be careful who you're hurting. So was it his power? Was he drunk with power? I don't know. But there's things that we have to look at in our own lives. Do we take advantage of people because we have power over them? I don't know. These are just questions I'm throwing out there that I ask myself all the time. And then we have to look at her. Did she play a part in this? You know, most people think that she was on a rooftop too, but the Bible doesn't really tell us that. The Bible tells us that David was on the rooftop. There could have been many courtyards that he could have been looking in. And, you know, I've read lots of articles where they're kind of hard on Bathsheba too. Like, why was she in the open? But when you see the scripture and how God deals with this, I think Bathsheba is not the problem here. Not once in this scripture does Bathsheba get in trouble, but David sure does. And so when you put yourself in her position, when the king of Israel calls for you, you don't really have much of a choice when his men come for you. But either way, however you want to look at it, at least it's worth looking at. So here we are, David, sleeping with his buddy's wife, ending up getting her pregnant. And then if things don't get any worse, he tries to cover up the fact that she's pregnant. And so like we looked at last week, he calls Uriah in from the war and says, hey, good to see you. I just wanted to say hi. Head on home tonight. And so in the morning, he finds out that Uriah didn't even enter his home. And he said to Uriah, why? Why are you not in your home? And he says, well, I'm at war for you, the king. And while my men are out on the field and not at their homes, there's no way I'm going in my home and sleeping with my wife. Not if they're out there. And so David ups it again. He says, well, come with me for dinner. And he puts a bunch of booze into her eye and gets him drunk, hoping that because he's inebriated, he's going to go sleep with his wife and let down some of his guards, which we know alcohol does that to people, lets down guards. And so he gets Uriah drunk, sends him home thinking, okay, now he's going to sleep with his wife and everybody's going to think it's his baby, not mine. And so in the morning, he finds out again, Uriah didn't go into his home. Slept on the steps, said, I'm not going. If my men are there, I'm not going. And so David, as if it doesn't get any worse than that, sends for Uriah and says, I need you to give a message to Joab at the front line, my general. And he writes a message that Uriah doesn't know and seals it up. And it says, put Uriah on the front lines. And when things get crazy, back off and basically let Uriah die on the front lines. Rolls it up, seals it, puts it in the hands of Uriah and tells Uriah to take it back to the war. And Uriah the Hittite takes his own death sentence from the king. An innocent, loyal man takes his own death sentence from the king, takes it to the front line, puts it in the general's hands. The general puts him on the front lines, backs off, and Uriah the Hittite dies. And I don't know how David got here, 
But David gets word that Uriah died, and now David sends for Bathsheba. She comes to him, and he thinks he's gotten away with it. That the husband is dead. He's now legally allowed to take her as a wife, and there'll be one big happy family. King David, our precious King David, over 25 weeks of looking at him, all of a sudden, he looks like the worst heel you could ever imagine. And the worst part about that is David ended up being just like Saul. Saul was chasing an innocent man, and David turned and killed, even worse than Saul, ended up killing his innocent man. So David thinks he's gotten away with it. But how many of you know when we think we've gotten away with something, God sees everything? That's why I'm so thankful for Jesus, because the Bible tells us if you don't have Jesus, every idle thought is going to be judged. I don't know how holy you think you are, but I know every idle thought of mine, I can't get through a day without not wanting to be judged by God. I can't get through one person hitting his brakes too hard in front of me on the road. Some thoughts in my head that I don't want to be judged for. And so thank God for Jesus. But David thought he got away with it. And now we're going to pick it up right here and we're going to read what takes place next. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 to 9, it says this. Then the Lord sent Nathan. Now Nathan is the prophet of the land right now. He's the voice and the spokesperson of God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, this is such a crazy story. Listen to this. There were two men in one city, one rich and another poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with the children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from him his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But rather he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused. So here's the story. Nathan says, there's a rich man and a poor man and a visitor comes, which you're supposed to be hospitable to. And he comes to the rich man. And rather than the rich man taking one from his many flocks, he goes and grabs the one ewe from the poor man Kills it so that the visitor can have a meal. So David hears about this and his anger is greatly aroused against the man. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who's done this shall surely die. And he shall surely restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, imagine this, you are the man. Thus saith the Lord of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and had delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So imagine this moment. David thinks he gets away with it. The prophet comes. Hey, prophet. Glad you came by for a visit. Nathan goes, I got a story for you. You're going to be so mad. There's this dude in your kingdom that did this, this, and this. And he took the little ewe lamb from the poor one. And David goes, what? He's going to die. But before he dies, he's going to repay that man fourfold of everything. And then he's going to die. And Nathan says, the man's you, dude. The man's you. 
God has sent me to tell you that the man is you. And God has been so good to you. And now you've repaid it evil. You've repaid it evil. So imagine that moment. And I look at that. And what makes me so interested in this story is that David had become so delusional that when the prophet painted a picture in front of him of who he was, basically just sent a mirror to him, just put a mirror up to his face. And David was so delusional that he wanted the man killed. And the man was him. And I think how deceiving that sin can be, right? How deceiving we can get into stuff or how delusional we can become, whether in unforgiveness or hate or, or whatever sin. We start to justify it to ourselves, whether because we're king now or just because we're favored of God or just because whatever, whatever, whatever. We can become so delusional that we don't even know at times who we are being. And that's why we need to every once in a while kick the blocks over in our lives and be like, Lord, 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 where am I today? Lord, open up all the rooms. Lord, fix me. Lord, wherever I'm missing it, Lord, show me where I'm blind. And Jesus talked about that in the scriptures. He says that people of God can be running around and following each other. And he says the blind lead the blind. We can become so delusional that the blind start leading the blind. And the Bible says they just all end up falling in a ditch. And so sin can get that way. Now, it's not just in the Old Testament that it can get this way. There's a very similar story in the book of Acts that I wanted to reference today. And in Acts chapter 9, now this is not King Saul. This is in the New Testament now, years and years and years later. There's a man by the name of Saul who becomes the greatest known apostle of all by the apostle Paul. But before he turns to Paul, his name is Saul. And this is at his conversion. And we're going to read this. This is after Christ. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So at this time, Saul was going after Christians. He was a Jew who was a Jew of the Jews. He said the Hebrew of the Hebrews. No one knew the law like him, following God. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, any Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound, arrested to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus of whom you are persecuting. Now just imagine that for a moment, okay? Saul is thinking he is doing the very will of God. Going in and arresting Christians, killing Christians, having them stoned, he thinks he's doing the will of God. And so he asks for a special paper from the synagogue that no, if I can find any of these Christians, give me a legal reason that I can go in and arrest these people and bring them back to Jerusalem and persecute them. So while he's on his way going to round up a bunch of Christians, a light hits him, he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine that moment that he is going to kill Christians for God and realizing that everything he's doing in the name of God is not for God at all? And he's like, oops. Or as I would say, I'd be like, oh crap. Right? Oh crap. But again, it talks about the delusion that we can get in. And I don't want to spend my entire life thinking I'm following God. 
and I'm not. And I think that's why Jesus ended up making it so clear with the commandment of love. So clear. That we are to love with all our God, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why Ephesians 4 says that we are to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven us. How did Christ forgive us? Totally. Totally. And that's his command, that we are to forgive others, even as Christ forgave us. So we can play the law game. We can go like, but that person, that, 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 that. And then God goes, but you, 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 you. And I don't want God bringing up my stuff that he already buried. I don't want, well, it wouldn't be God. I don't want the devil bringing it up. And when we start acting in the law, the accuser of the brethren has room on us. And all of a sudden we start accusing everybody else and acting like an enemy. Then that starts coming on us. And there's only one way to be free of that is to give people the same courtesy, the same right, the same grace. We forgive others even as Christ forgave us. You don't want to even try to think about one thing that he didn't forgive us for. He forgave us for everything. And we're not going to want to search because we don't want to not be forgiven for anything. So then the worst thing we can do walking this earth is to hold unforgiveness against somebody else. Because we're to forgive even as Christ has forgiven us. Now that's a tall order. And thank God we have Christ to help us in that. But it's not so hard unless you are so self-righteous that you think you've walked almost like Jesus, or I think I've walked even like Jesus, unless we're so self-righteous like that, it really shouldn't be that hard to forgive somebody else. I mean, I'm saying there's some circumstances that are going to take a work through. I'm not questioning it. But the general principle I'm talking about, it shouldn't be that hard because I really want to be forgiven of everything that I've done or will do. Anybody agree with me on that? And so if I want that, it has to be for everybody else. He didn't just die for me. Sometimes he makes me feel like he died just for me, like he's that personal and that wonderful. Sometimes he makes me feel like he died just for me, but he didn't. He died for the whole of humanity. So sin can be binding, especially in certain circumstances, that we can become so delusional we don't even know where we're at. But I want to end with this. Again, just what I've been saying. God's main point against this whole thing, it wasn't even that he had another sexual encounter, even though there's laws for that in the scripture too. What God was so mad about was that he took Uriah's. He took and hurt somebody else. And God, through Nathan the prophet, even said, David, I've given you everything, and I would have given you even more. Why did you take that one? And we know that's how temptation works too. It always wants something that we can't have. But God was so concerned. The fact that he took something that didn't belong to him, it belonged to somebody else. Those two together. And I want to be able to view the world through that way because that's God's heart. It's like we mess up all the time. He just doesn't want us messing up other people. He wants us to have a compassion and a love for other people. And it was because David hurt someone else. And 2 Samuel 12.10 says this, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Now watch this. This is really good, and this is my point today. 
because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Just leave that there. David hurt Uriah, and what did God say to that? You did it to me. You think you can go to God and tell him to go after somebody else? You're fooling yourself. The New Testament says it this way, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And God's like, you hurt him? No, you hurt me, because he's mine. She's mine, and you hurt them. It's like James says, he who blesses me and curses his brother. He says, how can this be? He says, your brother's made in the image and likeness of God. He says, how can you bless God and then curse your brother? who's made in the image and likeness of God. He says, this ought not to be so. How can fresh and filthy water come out of the same cistern? I'm preaching good. (laughs) And so God's mad. David didn't take care of Uriah and Bathsheba. He's not mad that even David stumbled. He's mad on what he did when he stumbled. So let's read on. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up an adversary against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemy of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also is born to you, shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Now, I don't want to divide up your Old Testament and New Testament positions and, and our right here. Things happened in the Old Covenant under the law that had to be satisfied. And what we want to see here is David was dealt with. David repented. God had to satisfy the law, but in his mercy and his preservation of Israel and everything in the future, God was also very gracious to David. He was deserving of death. He was deserving for his kingship to be wiped off the earth. But God knows that men is tempted, women are tempted. And that's why we see even as early as Joseph in the Bible, God turning evil for good. And you're going to see God turn this for good. Now David's got some hurts in this thing and nobody's nobody's going to want to go through what David did to finally get it turned for good. But God is gracious, gracious. And this is a turning point for David where he realized that he is not above God. He might be, have authority over Israel, but he's still under God. And he needs to go back down and dance with the folks again like we learned last, week, last few weeks when he brought the Ark of the Covenant in and his wife was so mad that he lowered himself to dance with the people. And David, God was saying, listen, you messed up. You need to get down there and dance with those people again. And so Psalm 51, which I'm not going to read right now, I'll give you your homework. What's the first verse on there? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Again, you know that we have been cleansed from our sins as New Testament believers. But for your homework, 
Go read Psalm 51. That's when David wrote the psalm, was in this situation that he was going through right now. So we didn't end up on a rah, rah, rah. But this is the word of God. Sometimes we just got to end somber. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you, God, that our sins are forgiven. Thank you, Lord, because of Jesus, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed our transgressions from us. You told us that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we're so grateful for that because, Lord, we've messed up so many times and we're so grateful for your mercy. We're so grateful that you sent Jesus to take away the sins of the world. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. But Lord, in the same moment, help us not to be deceived by sin or power or stupidity or addiction or whatever it may be. God, help us not get delusional so that we don't even see how bad we're being ourselves. Lord, through your loving kindness and tender mercies, reveal to us. Help us to see like you see and hear like you hear. Help us to walk in love, God. Help us to walk in forgiveness. Help us to be better on this earth. In the name of Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen.